Welcome to the Uncovered Podcast, where we take a deeper look into the ideas, companies, and entrepreneurs that are creating the future and uncover the stories you haven't heard. Uncovered is presented by PJC, an early-stage venture capital firm committed to supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs. We're back with another episode of the Uncovered Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Rob May, and we have Kevin O'Brien, the CEO of Greyhorn, on the show today. How are you doing, Kevin? Doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking some time. Um, We'd love to kick off the podcast by learning a bit more about you and and about what led you to starting Greyhorn. Yeah, of course. So I am a cybersecurity guy. I've been doing this since the late 1990s. I was part of a company called AtStake. And AtStake was founded by a group of hackers uh, called The Loft, who were based out of Cambridge. And they came to fame because in the mid-1990s, they started doing a bunch of work that attracted attention of the Department of Defense and stood in front of the U.S. Senate in 96-97 and talked about how in about a half hour they could probably take the Internet offline. And perhaps that was a reason why we shouldn't put critical infrastructure online and on the Internet. Nobody listened, good for me, bad for the world, um, but it also led them to, to start this company called AppStake. It was one of the first major cybersecurity companies, and we really had a, a great run, sold it to Mantec back in 2004. I found that cybersecurity as well as early stage. Uh, I've done five companies now, this is number six, and over the course of my career, I've really fallen in love with doing things in the cloud security space. And so email was an interesting problem. That's what we do. We're a cloud email security company that works with Fortune 500s and Global 2000s to protect against advanced attacks in their email environment. And when I started the business in late 2014, early 2015, nobody was doing anything in that space. And I said, that's in much the same way as some of my other experiences, fertile ground, where there's a confluence of a changing technology landscape a major security problem and an opportunity to use some new data science and technology approaches to solve it. What were the various roles that you held in your companies prior to being CEO? And what do you think the most helpful role was as you made the transition? Sure. So if you roll the clock all the way back to that stake, I was a reverse engineering pen tester, breaking down code to assembly and looking for vulnerabilities that you could exploit. Uh, 90s technology is a little bit different than what you see today, so those skills aren't, aren't super useful, but it gave me a real appreciation for the lowest level, uh, you know, assembly level code uh, risks and things you could do there. Uh, I then spent much of my career as a sales engineer. So I, in a, a variety of different companies, would join early stage and help uh, CTOs or CIOs who might not be publicly facing translate the technology into sales cycles. And I think that you know, the fact that I did it for a decade and a half is, is indicative of this. That was one of the foundational sets of skills that I still use today and still find valuable. Uh, being able to run a sales process, being in front of clients, traveling around in airplanes for weeks on end, you get good at the sales cycle. And being a sales engineer, you get good at translating complex technical information to an audience that may not be uh, particularly technical. Uh, I was then a product marketer, which was interesting. I helped launch a couple of products at CloudLock, whom we sold to Cisco, and was working with the analyst relations community, Gartner and Forrester and, and all of those folks, working on traditional marketing. Uh, moved into a VP of marketing role and then a chief operating officer role, both of which gave me some interesting experiences around 
fundraising and, and growing the business from the ground up. I was part of a very, very early stage privileged access management company. Started getting comfortable with how to pitch the venture market and how to raise funds and what that looks like. And then found a great horn uh, in 2015, beginning of. So all of them were useful experiences. Uh, but I think that from a day-to-day perspective, being comfortable, speaking publicly, being on a stage, working with clients, listening to discovery and, and translating that to product innovation, which comes straight out of being a sales engineer, that's what's the most impactful as a CEO. Yeah, interesting. I had a very similar experience, which was coming out of the hardware uh, background. My next job, other than design engineer, was sales engineering. And I found a similar thing. You learn to like deal with customers, you learn to negotiate contracts, like all this kind of stuff. It's pretty, pretty cool. Um, you mentioned that you like early areas where uh, there are a lot of uh, things sort of coming together to change um, you know, maybe something about an industry. And cloud is one of those. Um, how do you think about the timing, though, of when it's too early? Because you mentioned you were at CloudLock. Uh, so Gil and those guys were good friends when I was at Backupify. And, you know, we were very focused on the Google Apps ecosystem, all of us. And, like, that thing, that ecosystem, I think, got started a little bit slower than we anticipated, particularly in terms of the customer base realizing that they needed all these other add-ons and everything else. So when you started Greathorn, how did you think about uh, whether it was too early or it was too late, it was the right time, like what kinds of things did you look for? So I think when you start a venture, you have to be in a position where you are taking a risk and, and risk implies risk of failure, right? If it's a short thing, it's not a good venture deal because there are going to be big players who are already doing it. Mm-hmm. When we looked at Greathorn and we started thinking about email security, my CloudLock experience, and, and CloudLock, if folks aren't familiar, was a cloud access security broker, a CASB company. Um, and as you just said, it was uh, security for organizations that had adopted Google initially and then later Office and Salesforce and, and mm-hmm. other cloud technologies. Which ultimately, while, while, while that whole group got off to a slow start, like CloudLock had a really good exit at the end of the day. Yeah, it did. It and that was enormous. Yeah. You know, there are CASBs that are still independents today. Yeah. Uh, we just saw one raise about $500 million on a non-private equity venture round. And that's a big venture round. Yeah. So, you know, we, we looked at that and, and saw an opportunity because, precisely because, it was early into the adoption curve of a transformational technology, you know, Google Drive. You may not, might not think of it as transformational today, but we were talking to customers who were looking at it not as a way to reduce their storage costs from running an EMC cluster or having on-prem hardware, but rather as a way to enable collaboration. Mm-hmm. And... We started Greyhorn, we were looking at the cloud email market. And email is funny, right? Email is a 50-year-old technology. It's venerable, but incredibly vulnerable. And when we founded the company, 17% of the market in the global 2000 were using Google for their email systems, and about 7.5% were using O365. And so I had the experience of starting to pitch this, and all of the, the venture guys that I chatted with had the, forgive me, traditional venture uh, phrases, that it was a vitamin and not an antibiotic or a Band-Aid, not a tourniquet, et cetera, et cetera. And in some ways that was encouraging because it meant that we were doing something that nobody else had seen yet. And the bet we placed was this technology curve will continue and this will become the dominant ecosystem for email. Had we been wrong, well, I would have been too early. Yeah. Um, but we weren't. And, and so we ended up being the first of what Gartner now calls the cloud email security space, the, the um, perhaps unfortunately named CES of, of security. 
but it's a very risky bet to make. And so I think you look for those patterns. You say, is there something that's going to have a huge TAM uh, that is not yet realized, but will be within the next 18 to 24 months, which is about how long you need, at least for an enterprise company, to, to build a robust product and get there. And can I then do it on charisma and, and capital for the 18 to 24 month period before everybody's buying whatever the technology is? And you know, we place that bet and so far so good. So let's talk a little bit about hiring. I mean, people build companies and you know you have this, this insight early on. How did you go about putting together the first five to 10 people at the company? What was your process there? Yeah, uh, let start by saying that the team you build initially and the team that you build at each stage varies and changes. And it's rare that the people who join you earlier are the people who are with you at the mid stage. And again, rare that they're with you at the late stage. Uh, there's some reduction in the number of people who fall off, I think, as you get more mature. But the profile of somebody who will join a non-entity company, right? and is willing to come and be part of an organization so early are typically folks who are not risk adverse. They might be not risk adverse because they've done this two or three times and they're very senior. They might be not risk adverse because they're new to the market and they're, they're trying to get in. And we had a little bit of both, right? We had a couple of folks who had worked with me previously. My co-founder and I obviously were the first two employees, but uh, we then took a couple of folks who had been with me at CloudBlock and then again at, at subsequent businesses and, and they joined. And then we grabbed a couple of developers who were young in their careers and wanted to break in and, and were young enough, uh, you know, chronological age that they didn't have mortgages and kids and, and those obligations. And they said, we can try this and we can go join. Uh, anyway, and that's not the profile we hire for today per se, but in the early, early days, it gave us that opportunity to bring people into the business and do so with a, a minimization of risk to them. And we got a pretty good result from, from that kind of a profile. Yeah, I think those can be great experiences for, um, for for young people to go work at a super early stage startup because, like you say, if it fails, it's not a big deal to them, right? They don't have a high risk profile in their life, life yet. Um, first couple employees usually get a little bit higher equity grants than they might get if they come in later for the same roles. Um, but also you just get to see that first, like that zero to $1 million phase of companies is so hard to get through. And it's actually so rare that companies get through it successfully. And so to see somebody do that, I think, is is really, really valuable. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that the people who will join you early often will bring a perspective on the market that is directly informed by their customer experiences. And that's not what you're going to get later when they're going to be informed by their experiences at previous companies or what they've done before. And so as you start to see and work with uh, your clients, having an entire team that is obsessed with customer feedback shortens that loop to getting a product market fit. And yeah. you know, somebody who's, who's 23 or 24 has only had one job or has had no jobs out of school, and you tell them, we're trying to figure out if this is going to work. They're not bringing the perspective of, well, the last company I built, we did it this way. And that's great later. But early, you want that, that feedback loop to be as tight as possible. And so I think there's a lot of ability in the same way that the employee can take more risk in their life. The company can take more risk early in its life because you are not building on anything yet. You're, you're exploring and seeing where product market fit really comes from. Yep. Um, talk about how you, you, you mentioned how um, some of the early VCs that you talked to didn't really understand the market, didn't see this. Um, 
Uh, I, you know, and I, I totally get it. VCs miss a lot of things. I had a bunch of, in my backup of five days, 2009, 2010, the number of VCs who told me that businesses were never going to move their data to the cloud mm-hmm. was a lot, right? Which seems like a ridiculous thing to say now, but, but that's what a lot of people thought. And, um, uh, and so, you know, how, how did you put your first funding rounds together? Did you target security-focused firms? Did you do angel rounds first? Or, like, what was your strategy? Yeah, so I initially pitched both the angel side of things as well as some of the security and SaaS firms that I knew. Uh, the later stage firms, you know, would, would often present that they were willing to give us a million dollars in seed when we had at least 100000 in monthly recurring revenue. Uh, which is absurd, right? Like, if I spend a million dollars a year coming in, I need a million dollars, I need five. Yeah. But, you know, that is the the pattern match to a first-time CEO or founder. And so, you know, the venture market tends to be somewhat ironically risk-adverse at a certain stage, whereas angels can be a little bit easier to work with. So our first check came from an angel, um, and, and I was handed a check in a Starbucks in uh, the Cambridge Side Galleria, a shopping mall, um, because that individual knew me and said, I totally think this is the right play. And, and you know, so far, I think we've been good stewards of his money and, and he'll get it, it back in spades. But, you know, the the steps that were required to get there were a lot of meetings and, and uh, some early customer traction. And more than once in those days, my co-founder and I said, we're going to stop thinking about raising capital because it's not about dollars in. We, we need just enough to survive. We're going to be laser focused on what our prospects and our customers need, you know, more the former and then later the latter. But we really found that every time we drilled in, we'd have the venture market telling us why it wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And we had a whole bunch of customers telling us that they wanted to pay us money because it was working. And ultimately, the latter overwhelms the former. We were fortunate as well that I had been working with uh, a Forrester analyst who I had known from my Cloudlock days, and, and he put me in touch with the Techstars New York managing director, a guy named Alex Iskold. Uh, and Alex now has his own venture fund and is focused on, on first-time founders. But you know, Alex, because of that DNA of thinking about early founders and as a former operator, uh, offered us a, a, a slot in Techstars New York. So he said no. Uh, and, and he came back to us a couple of times and, and we finally did say yes and it was a great move um, but we were non-traditional founders and maybe a little arrogant in that in that we're slightly older and slightly more experienced and we had this perception that accelerators were for young kids not, not for folks in our position and I couldn't have been more wrong it was a great move and with that stamp of approval we went from a 10 customer tiny baby startup to having now, uh, you know, a round that completed this past summer. But you, you find, I think, that you just need one person to say yes. If you get 100 no's, it doesn't matter if you get one yes. And, and that's the other side of that, which is just grit and being willing to work a pipeline, just like sales, continue plugging away at it, listen to your customers, build something people want, iterate on it. And eventually somebody, whether it's an angel or it's a syndicate or it's a series seed firm or whatever, someone will believe enough to write a check and, and give you the fuel to then take it to the next step. So you, we talked, uh, you talked a little bit about your career background and how that helped prepare you for the CEO role. Um, before we got on the podcast here, you talked about some of the things that you like to do personally, right? Ski, mm-hmm. jiu-jitsu. Um, do you feel like some of those activities have also taught you things that have helped you uh, for the CEO role? And if so, what, what are those? I mean, I always feel like martial arts is a 
good influence. Um, but I've been doing that my entire life, and, and I've got a couple of black belts and not in jiu-jitsu, uh, and that's new. Uh, you know, I think that whether it's athletics or sports of any kind, martial arts, the determination, the ability to bear with some pain and, and keep going and, and not give up too early uh, directly correlates to starting a business. Look, if you can go work for somebody else, go work for somebody else. It's a hell of a lot easier. Uh, you know, I think that those of us who are inspired to found companies or, or play in the early stage of the market do so because we're terrible employees and we have to go do this. And, you know, if that's true, then you're signing up for a lot of heartache and a lot of pain. Uh, and you've got to get comfortable with it. And the rewards can be great, but, you know, some of the rewards for folks who go down a more traditional path and, and it's just a different lifestyle. It's not better, it's not worse. So uh, I have always gravitated towards things that are painful, I guess. Uh, and, you know, like I would say that... He, like, he started a company. So. Started a company. I spend my free time letting guys armbar me and... and, me and I, I don't know. Like, maybe there's something wrong with me. But, uh, yes, I think there is some connection there. So what's something... So, you know, the Uncovered podcast, we like to figure out what is what are one or two things pieces of advice that you would pass forward to listeners that, you know, are not covered on Twitter or TechCrunch about, you know, founding a company and being a CEO? Yeah. Um, first, uh, disabuse yourself of any idea that being a CEO has anything to do with glamour, glory, uh, anything important about you. If you're not doing the hardest and worst jobs in the company for as long as possible, you're doing it wrong. Uh, I think that West Coast Silicon Valley culture, television, movies, etc., uh, completely misrepresent what being a CEO is, especially the early stage. Um, and TechCrunch and, and all of these places are going to tell you the stories that, you know, the leads, leads are going to be the exciting ones. Most of it just sucks. And get comfortable with that and embrace it. And don't do this because there's anything about your ego that's going to be stoked by being a CEO because you're doing completely the wrong thing. If that's what you're thinking about. Uh, venture is hard. Early stage company building is hard. You're going to have less control than you would think. Um, and you have to, again, you have to need to do this, not just want to do it for some reason. So that's the, the first piece of advice that I would give. Uh, and the second is be absolutely merciless about building the kind of company that you want to work for, which is a way of saying build a good culture. But what the heck is culture, right? We have a whole market that tells us that you know culture is something that you get out of Again, kind of like West Coast, move fast, break things, et cetera. Don't do that. Uh, and the answer to culture, in my mind, is who do you want to work for? Chances are you've spent longer working for someone than you've done building your own. And pay really close attention to those years, especially if you know someone's listening and they're not yet an entrepreneur and haven't started something. Slow down. Observe. See what's not working. And don't make those mistakes. Let somebody else make those mistakes on their dime and then correct for it. And the corollary to that is, you know, if somebody's the wrong fit and you've articulated your culture very clearly, get them out of your business because that is toxic and it's toxic in ways you can't imagine. In the CEO seat, you're going to see 10% of what's going on in your business and hopefully it's the right 10%. But if you have an inkling that someone is, is a misfit, get them out of there. What are some of the stakes, you know, it's, we got to wrap up here, but like, ending on culture, I think, like, what are some of the mistakes that you think founders make when they think about culture? Um, if they, you know, think about it the wrong way or, or, or don't build good cultures, why, why do you think that is? Uh, so look, culture at the end of the day is about taking the people who work for you and inspiring them and making them want to continue working for you when everything else is, uh, on fire. And 
that requires that you lead with sincerity and authenticity. Anything that is not about leading with sincerity and authenticity is not culture building. It is some kind of kabuki theater, so don't do it. I think a lot of founders confuse the design of their office or the games they have or the beers they drink on Friday afternoons with culture. And culture is about really first coming to terms with whatever it is that you as a founder need and then what your people need and where those things intersect, giving them to people, being vulnerable, being open, listening, really listening. Uh, if you do that, I think you're going to build a good culture. If you try to do something for some other ulterior motive, it, at best it's going to be insincere and people are going to see right through it. Great. Well, Kevin, thanks for, for being on the podcast today. Um, if people want to learn more about Great Porn, is the website just greatporn.com? It sure is. Great. And for those of you listening, if you have guests you'd like to see on the program or questions you'd like us to ask in the future, uh, you can send those to podcast at pjc.bc. Um, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll check out the rest of our episodes. Thanks for listening to the Uncovered Podcast. To learn more about PJC and the Uncovered Podcast, visit us at www.pjc.vc or email us at podcast at pjc.vc.